0: The End of SOFIA, this week on Planetary Radio. Welcome. I'm Matt Kaplan of the Planetary Society with more of the human adventure across our solar system and beyond. SOFIA, the great infrared telescope mounted in a 747 aircraft, made its last flight on the night of September 30, 2022. Director of Science Mission Operations Margaret Meixner joins me for a conversation about the observatory's legacy not long before she got on board for that swan song journey. You'll hear her sorrow and joy. It's a solid joy to know that the CD of the Moon Symphony is about to become available, including liner notes by yours truly. We'll have a copy for the winner of the new Space Trivia Contest Bruce will present today. Though I'm still feeling the symptoms, I'm very glad to announce that I've tested negative for COVID twice today. It has not been a fun 11 days of isolation, but my experience has been so much easier than many around the world. Still, it's partly why this week's show is a bit shorter than most. Be careful out there, folks. A smashing success. That's how Nancy Shabo of The Dart Mission described it in last week's show— and it's the headline for the September 30 edition of the Downlink, the Planetary Society's free weekly newsletter. Take a look at the spectacular image captured by Italy's little Lichia cube shortly after the impact. Wow! There's a link to many other images and more about the mission at planetary.org downlink. Poor Artemis 1. NASA had to roll it back to the Vehicle Assembly Building ahead of Hurricane Ian. Now it seems the next launch attempt won't be till mid-November. That's also bad news for all the secondary payloads on board the Space Launch System rocket. Also in the downlink is your chance to help give official names to 20 exoplanets. For real. This is through the International Astronomical Union, after all. Details on this opportunity are also in the downlink. It's always sad to lose a great instrument of science. Losing SOFIA is worse in at least one way than the collapse of the Great Arecibo Radio Telescope because this time it's intentional. But as we've learned from Planetary Society Chief Advocate Casey Dreyer, SOFIA, the Stratospheric Observatory for Infrared Astronomy, has long been under the eye of NASA and others due to its cost. As you'll hear, Margaret is disappointed but accepts the decision to end operations. But she notes that this leaves us with a big blind spot in our ability to understand the universe. You'll also hear Margaret mention IPAC. That's the Infrared Processing and Analysis Center at Caltech, where anyone can explore SOFIA's data. SOFIA itself is an 80-20 partnership between NASA and the German Space Agency, the DLR. The science mission operations that Margaret heads are a partnership between the University's Space Research Association, or USRA, and the German Sophia Institute. It has always been based at NASA's Armstrong Flight Research Center in the Mojave Desert, not too far from Pasadena. And it was near there that I found Margaret preparing for the final flight. Margaret, welcome to Planetary Radio for uh, a conversation about Sophia, uh, that flying observatory, which has given me a couple of the best experiences I've had in my professional life. Thank you so much for joining us.
1: Well, thank you, Matt.
0: We would have continued to report on Sophia's wonderful work if it had a long life ahead of it. But of course, as you know, the end of Sophia's days as a flying observatory is uh, almost upon us. In fact, by the time our audience hears that, it will have passed. Are you still looking at September 30th as uh, the last observational flight?
1: Actually, the last observational flight will be tonight, September 28th. Uh, uh, and I'm so delighted I'll be on it.
0: I don't blame you. Boy, that's got to be poignant. Uh, very special. I mean, there is so much to celebrate with this observatory, but there, you have to have very mixed emotions, I assume.
2: Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, when I uh, took this position a little over two years ago, we were set to revamp and um, greatly improve the science productivity of Cephew, which we did. And we were super excited about its success, and we were, you know, deflated with uh, the outcome this year uh, due to the decadal uh, survey and then NASA and DLR's decision to conclude. Sophia mission it's um, you know it's a sad moment because um, Sophia has worked very hard all well, throughout its life but particularly this last two years we really ramped up we are at peak performance in terms of flights in terms of science publications um, in terms of uh, science community engagement yeah uh, you know I suppose if you have to end you're ending on a high note but still we uh, we, we do you know we could funding permitted of course probably go on for another decade. But it's, um, you know, it's, uh, you know, a tough decision that NASA had to make in light of the decadal. And, uh, you know, we accept that. But uh, personally, I'm very, personally, I'm very sad about the moment.
0: We can get through the the sadder portion of the conversation and move on to the happy stuff a little, little bit later, because um, the observatory, Sophia, has been so productive and, and and has made such huge contributions which i hope you'll be able to talk about a little bit i i've uh, heard from some of your colleagues at uh, the german aerospace center the dlr particularly the uh uh sophia german sophia institute they are mm, i guess it's safe to say not just sad but um probably a little bit angry they they would love to see this continue and in fact they also have some hope that uh we're not going to see the last uh, flight of sophia uh uh tonight as as you and i speak does it look like there are any prospects in that area and 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 do you have anything to say to the not just the uh the folks in germany but the other international partners and and astronomers around the world who've relied on sophia
2: uh yes no i i agree with the sentiment of you know it being sad and and disappointing and um, to my knowledge we don't have we will not be continuing under NASA and DLR. I, I suppose somebody else could pick it up, but I, I have no news on who that would be or or how it would be operated, um, or who would be operating it. Certainly, it's um, it, it would be a fabulous acquisition if somebody decided to t- to latch onto it. What happens
0: now, uh, at least in the coming weeks and months, uh, to the plane, the telescope? those marvelous instruments that it has used to collect all this great data, and maybe most importantly, uh, the team.
2: Right. Well, let me start off with the plane and the and the instruments. I mean, these are, um, some of the instruments are owned by institutions, and of course they get returned to those institutions, like uh, the Great Instrument, um, the heterodyne receiver instrument that belongs to University of Cologne. Likewise, uh, FPLS belongs to the German University in Stuttgart, but uh, some of the instruments are what we call facility instruments. That's at NASA's discretion about where they land. Um, and I haven't heard yet of what those decisions are. You hear things about, maybe well, some will go to a museum. Maybe some will be reused um, for other um, parts. So, it, I mean, I think the, my understanding is if there's a use, an active use for, for something that's you know, the first priority. Is it can be actively reused? Um, uh, the Xe's instrument, of course, will go back to the PI at University of California Davis for potential re- reuse. Um, and then, in terms of the airplane, again, that that is government property. That and the, and the telescope, of course, is German government property. So, I mean, those those handles are being those things are being handled by um, NASA and DLR to figure out where where those things are going. Um, now about the team, that I, I can speak more directly for. We have a closeout plan that follows along what work the government needs from USRA, science mission operations, and uh, we've hammered
1: out that plan, which I'm, you know, includes some reprocessing of the data. Uh, so Sophia will live on in the Infrared Science Archive, uh, located at IPAC. Um, you can get some of that data now, but uh, we will be reprocessing it to make the best archive for for some sets of the later sets of the data. We have um, a one year timescale for that, um, and we have been working with our team uh, to keep them informed throughout the process since April. We've been absolutely transparent about what we're trying to achieve and close out, including input from them as much as possible, and just going back and forth, <clears throat> excuse me, in terms of. Um, what's happening, and giving them uh, plenty of notice um, so they can seek out other positions. Now, the SOFIA team is amazing. Um, It literally is the best team I've ever had the the pleasure to lead. They're incredibly dedicated. They're very smart. (laughs) They're very resourceful, and they're very team-oriented. And if you've ever been on a flight, you have at least five different parties having to work in unison to execute the observations, and they do it flawlessly. I mean, this year it's been flawless operations. And some of them, you know, Sophia is a mix of people who love astronomy and also love aircraft. And so you can imagine that um, where they may go, um, depending on what what their desires are. And uh, we we are giving them every support we can in terms of um, trying to identify other opportunities that might interest them. I can tell you, uh, if you're out there reviewing any of their resumes, they're amazing. And you'd be lucky to have them on your staff.
0: I have to think that uh, listing this experience on their resumes or CVs has got to be pretty attractive to wherever they may end up next. And I have personal experience of how the different elements of this team worked together from that flight that I and a couple of my colleagues uh, made in 2015 uh, and how well it was managed, how well it was put together. It, it was just truly, as I already said, one of the great experiences of my professional, really my entire life to see how they work together from the cockpit back to the the telescope itself to uh, deliver the science that Sophia was capable of. I, it was very, very impressive.
1: Yes, it is.
0: Are we going to be seeing good science come out of SOFIA data for a long time to come?
1: Oh, I, yes, most certainly. I mean, the last flight is tonight. Uh, we're, the Hawk Plus instruments on the flight, <clears throat> it's been one of our... I don't know, most groundbreaking instruments because it's ever able to measure magnetic fields in nearby star-forming regions as well as nearby galaxies. And we have not only the individual investigator programs, but we have um, a number of legacy programs where PIs get a larger chunk of time. Um, they do a, a very comprehensive survey, and um, that data goes into the archive available immediately for anybody to use. But then they also... Uh, work on maybe some higher level data products that they can deliver back to the archive and analysis tools. Um, so all those things we hope really enrich um, the archive, and uh, the archive is going to be available for the foreseeable future. It's at one of NASA's um, the Infrared Science Archive, and I'm expecting to see so paper Sophia papers twenty years from now because someone goes back, looks at something, analyzes it, and comes up with a with a new discovery. Um, but yeah, we do have. Um, um, some science uh, events coming out. We have something on um, active galactic nuclei, signatures for uh, eight active galactic nuclei, and that will be I think, in October. That is, you know, a discussion. All of our science presentations and many workshops talk about SOFIA data, but they talk about, you know, the multi-wavelength nature of astronomy, and so how it's used with, in conjunction with other observatories, optical, and UV, and X-ray, and radio. Um, And, uh, of course, the the niche that SOFIA is providing is this wavelength range in the far-infrared where most of the radiation from cosmic ecosystems come out. And so it is a very key area of diagnostics, and um, I'm excited about that workshop. And uh, we have a number of other workshops that have happened over the past two years in this um, very important effort we've had with science outreach and communication to show people what the SOFIA data can do for them.
0: Margaret, do you have any idea how many papers have been published that have been based on, uh, at least in part, Sophia data?
2: Indeed I do. its um, it, I'm going to give you a round number, around 300.
0: Wow, that's impressive.
2: So we really started taking lots of science data in 2014.
0: I just want to make the comment now about what this indicates about the hole that Sophia has filled which I've heard about from several other scientists, that that the lack of SOFIA is going to leave us without a lot of ability to examine some of these wavelengths, isn't it?
2: It is. You know, um, one of the reasons I became director is I thought this um, SOFIA is the only working foreign fruit observatory in the world at the moment, and it's important to make it as scientifically productive as possible. And, And like I said, I believe we did that. But when it goes away, when... It takes us last flight tonight. Um, The astronomy community won't have an observatory to apply to with projects in mind. The fortunate thing is the decadal recommended that NASA invest in this wavelength range with potentially a probe. It might be an X-ray or far infrared probe and a a next-generation great observatory down the road. So it is realized to be important in that process, but we will have a time gap Mm. for sure. We will have a time gap.
0: There's something else that I'm thinking of that has been of value, I think. And I saw evidence of this on the flight that I made with my, my colleagues in 2015. We weren't the only people along for the ride. There were, I believe, three teachers. I think they were high school science teachers who were participating on behalf of their their classes back at their schools. It was kind of the culmination of a, of a long line of study that they had been conducting. Talk a little bit about this program and, and how it represents the outreach that you've been able to accomplish uh, through Sophia.
2: Right. Well, I have to say that that's uh, done by another organization uh, with with Sophia, but I have certainly witnessed it, like you did. Uh, very valuable type of outreach, unique in the realm of NASA, because you know we can't send you know teachers up to to touch Hubble. You know, it's a robotic mission far off in space. Uh, and only if you're a highly trained astronaut can you go repair it but you know with sophia we land every day and take off every day and that enables us not only to you know fix and repair instruments and stuff but it allows us to take new people on and the teacher program is phenomenal phenomenal i had teachers come up to me at the AAS saying we are so sad that sophia is going away cuz it was such a inspirational opportunity and, you know, these teachers do come on board, you know, they've done some prep work, they, they teach their classes about it, it really pulls in through the teachers, uh, the excitement of, of, of doing science, of working in STEM. Uh, it's a very exciting um, opportunity, and I loved talking to the teachers that um, have been on board.
0: As I said, I saw direct evidence of this as well. And uh, just in the enthusiasm of these teachers, they obviously felt as fortunate as we did to to be on board Sophia for that flight. You said you're going to be on that flight tonight, the last flight, as far as we know, uh, with uh, Sophia conducting observations. What will be the target this evening?
2: Oh, right, right. Well, I can tell you when we do a flight series, we always do the most important targets first. So I, just to tell you about the flight series of this Hawk Plus run, the the primary target, which had already been accomplished, that was to finish the mapping of the magnetic field in the galactic center.
0: Oh, great.
2: Um, so that was uh, super exciting. Um, on this last flight, we continue to map magnetic fields in different objects. Uh, we are looking at these um, legacy program. Two legacy programs. One is the one I mentioned with the filaments. So we're looking at two filaments from the Simplify program where we're mapping the magnetic fields in, the, in, in a star formation, star forming filament. And the other one is for um, a galaxy. It's a starburst galaxy NGC 253. And that's for another legacy program called SALSA. Uh, led by Enrique Lopez Rodriguez, and he is mapping the magnetic fields um, in a number of iconic nearby galaxies and just showing a whole new light as to what's happening in these galaxies. So that's what's happening. We're, we're mapping magnetic fields in the universe tonight.
0: Uh, Margaret, uh, clear skies tonight on that last flight of SOFIA. Please convey a message from Bill Nye and all of us at the Planetary Society and probably everybody listening to this as well. Thanking and congratulating everybody on board and everybody on the ground who has contributed to uh, all of these successes that you've given us a taste of with, uh, with Sophia. And, and best of uh, continued success to uh, all of you as we watch the data continue to flow.
2: Thank you. Thank you so much, Matt. And uh, we really appreciate all the, the fan support the Planetary Society has had for us over the years. Keep your eyes open for Sophia results. They will still continue to come out, and they will still continue to inspire.
0: Margaret Meisner is the Director of Science Mission Operations for Sophia. Margaret provides a greatest hits list of some of Sophia's discoveries at planetary.org slash radio and in the podcast version of this week's show. I'll be right back with Bruce. This is Planetary Radio.
2: There's so much going on in the world of space science and exploration, and we're here to share it with you. Hi, I'm Sarah, Digital Community Manager for the Planetary Society. Want more space? We've got the latest news, pretty planetary pictures, and Planetary Society publications on our social media channels. You can find the Planetary Society on Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, and Facebook. I hope you'll like and subscribe so you never miss the next exciting update from the world of planetary science.
0: Hello, I'm George Takei, and as you know, I'm very proud of my association with Star Trek. Star Trek was a show that looked to the future with optimism, boldly going where no one had gone before. I want you to know about a very special organization called the Planetary Society. They are working to make the future that Star Trek represents a reality. Boldly go to build our future. Time for What's Up on Planetary Radio, and I'm joined therefore by the chief scientist of the Planetary Society. Right now it's Bruce Betts. I mean, it's always Bruce Betts. He's always the chief scientist. I don't know what I meant by right now. Back in 2015, he was still (laughs) The chief scientist. I was
3: still Bruce Betts. Yeah. uh, Yeah. Hi, Matt. And we, what did we do in 2015? We
0: went with our good friend, Merck Boyan, our video guy from the Planetary Society, our ace video guy. And we rode on that plane, just as I mentioned uh, during the interview with uh, Margaret a few minutes ago. Man, it was a great experience. And we're going to link to those random space uh, fact videos. There's another video that Merck made just generally about the experience. Yeah. And then, of course, the show, the the Planetary Radio episode that uh, came out of that experience as well. What a great adventure. It was, and a very, very impressive facility. So if you were up there above the clouds with a big telescope, what would you be looking at uh, right now?
3: Well, being a planetary guy, I would look at planets. And I would look in the evening, and I would check out uh, over in the east, uh, moving towards the south, at least for those of us in the northern hemisphere, bright, bright, Super, very bright Jupiter hanging out uh, in the sky and to its upper right. Again, upper, even right, Saturn, Saturn, move, move in the sky towards the west and you'll see a yellowish object that's Saturn. Uh, you, will, you have uh, any trouble finding these, which you shouldn't for Jupiter because it's brighter than the brightest star. Uh, the moon is hanging out between them or near them, moving from Saturn on the 5th of October to uh, Jupiter on the 8th of October. Coming up a couple hours later in the mid evening, mid to late evening, is Mars, uh, looking very bright. Mars brightening for the next couple months, you can watch it over the next two months, brightened by about a factor of three, but it's wow. already very, very bright as Earth and Mars approach each other in their orbits, as they do every 26 months. If you have a good view to the eastern horizon and are up before dawn, for some reason, you can check out Mercury, but very low to the horizon gets about its highest on the 8th and then heads back down, being that sneaky little bugger that it is. This week in space history. 1967, Apollo 7, the first crewed Apollo mission to space, launched this week in 1968. On to...
0: ...spice fact! Oh, if only people could see your mouth working you did that.
3: It was... Yeah, okay. Anyway, Matt, you may have wondered, how heavy is that telescope that they carry in an airplane? I have. Well, the installation weight of the Sofia Airborne Observatories of Telescope was the equivalent of more than a dozen DeLorean cars. <laughs> I decided put in something everyone has a in, an intuitive feel for. Yeah, sure.
0: <laughs> That's great. Did they include the uh, the time machine portions? Uh, uh, what what was it called? I forget what the device was called. We'll get it. From
3: the there. flux capacitor.
0: That's it. Of course, the flux capacitor.
3: Yeah, this doesn't count when they're like time displacements. This is just your standard run-of-the-mill DeLorean. I guess no DeLorean is standard run-of-the-mill. So And no Mr. Fusion built into the hood? <laughs> no, they're not gone to the future. Uh, anyway, that's about 17 tons for those of you who uh, don't have a, a good feel for DeLoreans, but do have, for some reason, a good feel for what 17 tons really means. I'm trying to come up with a good rhyme.
0: 17 tons, and what do you get? A telescope (laughs) that flies inside of a jet. There, there, I
3: did it. (laughs) There, there it is. Wow, we witnessed it in real time. Wow, that stands alone. I'm moving on to the trivia contest. Uh, I asked you, what is the approximate approximate diameter of the crater that deep impact made when it impacted Comet Temple 1?
0: How did we do, Matt? Really well. It was uh, great to hear from everybody. Still getting those great messages from everybody about my plans. Thank you for that, everyone. I am so far behind in responding, but it is my plan, my intent to uh, respond to everybody. One of those nice things said came from Gene Lewin in Washington. He also uh, sent this uh, poem. When all the dust had settled, Temple One had a big dent. A crater now existed from an impactor we had sent. It left quite a divot 150 meters wide and opened up this comet so we could see what was inside.
3: Oh, very nice. Divot! <laughs> 150 meters? 150 meters, as, uh, as determined from later spacecraft flyby of what the Stardust follow-on mission.
0: Yeah, which we've heard from a whole bunch of people, because you did mention that. It was Stardust repurposed as next. Daniel Huckabee. He is a past winner, but it has been well over three years since Daniel Huckabee in Nevada picked up a win here. He said, greetings, Matt and Bruce. Uh, Interesting tidbit, diameter of the crater left by Deep deep Impact, a little bit larger than the height of the Great Pyramid of Giza, which is 430 feet tall. He says, P.S., we're going to miss you, Matt. (laughs) Thank you. Daniel. I'm going to miss you too. But Daniel, you get this prize to help you stop worrying about that. It's the medallion that the Planetary Society created in 1989 to commemorate the Voyager missions Neptune and Counter. We will put one of those in the mail to you. (laughs) Daniel, and oh, who wants one there? Which of the dogs wants a medallion?
3: Uh, That's Gracie. Gracie desperately wants a medallion. She loves them.
0: (laughs) We're ready to go on, and boy, we have a great prize.
3: Okay, well, I've got a great question. Name the solar system body and the category of geologic feature that are officially named after abandoned cities. So we're looking for a planetary body, like a planet, asteroid, and a category of geologic features like, you know, mountain. But we're looking for the proper Latin term, and we're looking for that for ones that are officially named after abandoned cities go to planetary.org slash radio contest
0: wow you have until the 12th of october wednesday october 12th at 8 a.m pacific time to get us this answer and here's the prize the moon's symphony by composer amanda lee falkenberg conducted of course by uh, Marin Alsop. It is absolutely gorgeous. The BBC has just come out with an article praising it in its uh, classical music magazine. It's from Signum Classics. I highly recommend it. Seven movements each inspired by a different moon of our solar system. And boy, did I have a good time uh, watching it being recorded by the London Symphony Orchestra under the baton of Marin Alsop. I think we're done. Wow, very
3: cool. Uh, Thank you for listening, and everybody, go out there, look up in the night sky, and think about what Matt's head looks like when it, no, think about, ooh, ooh, think about Matt's, no, hey,
0: just think about Matt. Thank you, and good night. Okay, that's enough. You can stop now. He's Bruce Betts, the chief scientist of the Planetary Society, who joins us thoughtfully every week here on What's Up. Planetary Radio is produced by the Planetary Society in Pasadena, California, and is made possible by its members who never want to see the end of our quest. Marco Verde and Ray Poletta, our associate producers, Josh Doyle composed our theme, which is arranged and performed by Peter Schlosser. Ad Astro.